mouth open and lips curled back like a guppy. She was gurgling, spittling blood. I was horrified. Someone was playing a trombone, and the dreadful blaring bombarded the atelier. I fell to my knees and cradled my housekeeper's head in my arms. She whispered, Just wanted to know if there was anything I could do for you. And then she died. The trombone continued to honk, beginning to sound more and more like a car horn. It was a car horn, blasting repeatedly outside my bedroom window. I awoke with a start. Another nightmare. I was covered with a cold, clammy layer of sweat. Would the rest of my nights be filled with nightmares and cold sweat? I had always enjoyed bedtime. Now I dreaded going to sleep. My dreams were like a gang of bad memories riding into my head every night to cause havoc, to shoot up the joint, torment me, get even. For what? My heart was pounding. My head ached. The morning was beginning like all the others were these days. Heart pounding, head aching, body damp and dank, mind confused and slightly frightened. Was I sick? Would I get better? Worse? Another day. My birthday. I picked up the telephone by my bed, placed it on my stomach, and dialed my secretary. Hiya, she said cheerfully. Happy birthday. I thanked her. How old are you now? Fifty. Wow, that's old, she said, meaning no harm. So it's June 3rd, I mused. Time to go. It's time to go, I said half-heartedly. Time to go, repeated my secretary. Was I still good, I wondered. I was obviously not as perfect, not as precise as I used to be. Had I become slow and rusty, or even worse, careless, burned out, as they like to say? I'm going away, I told my secretary. I'm going to take a little vacation. Everybody's getting on my nerves. Everything's getting me down. I just want to go somewhere and disappear for a while. Will you let me know where you are? Maybe. We exchanged goodbyes and I hung up. I flopped back onto my pillows. I wanted to begin loathing the new day in comfort. The fact that I would soon be going out into the real world was acutely distressing. During the past few months, I had grown more and more accustomed to staying home, safe and secure, in my apartment, my hobbit hole, as I called it. It was a small apartment, four uninspiring rooms and a bath on Peck Boulevard in Beverly Hills. The Beverly Hills, a source of perpetual awe and import to my family back in Philadelphia. The apartment house was a white stucco affair that reminded me of London, and the location was perfect, four blocks from South Rodeo Drive and the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. South Rodeo Drive was a wonderful street. It was full of important shops that sold the necessities of life, tobacco, alcohol, literature, and good ice cream sodas. With the proper disguise, 
I could scurry down the street and around the corner to Dunhill's for a small cigar or Brentano's bookstore for emergency reading material or the Pink Turtle coffee shop for a late night Sunday or a piece of chocolate cake. My newspapers and magazines were delivered. Whatever else I didn't have or might desire, my housekeeper or my secretary would bring me. And of course, there were my possessions. Those material things a recluse who has lived too long by himself comes to depend upon and cherish. There were my bed, my pillows, and my comforter, all of which I had become less and less willing to share. My cameras and guitars, my phonograph, adjusted to specific levels and never tampered with, and my work area. The womb. It was in the womb. Surrounded by typewriters, dictionaries, synonym finders, and reams of Eaton Bond paper that I spent my happiest hours. It was there that I worked most of the days and half the evenings attempting to write an autobiography tentatively titled Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. The book would hopefully act as a catharsis, exercising from my mind and body the agonizing frustration anger and bitterness that had been brewing there for too long a time. Perhaps upon completing confessions, I would understand why some of my peers had been nailing me with such fury to the cross for trying to make people laugh, while others had been slipping me medals and presidential citations under the table for, well, anyway, as my grandmother would have said, go no. Such fury. Such fury from critics I never met and rarely understood. It was these critics, these strangers, who had accused me and my television shows of pandering to evil passions, of flourishing on the embarrassment of others, of orchestrating the emotions of vulnerable human beings to their own detriment, of being a Svengalian symbol of all that was wrong with commercial television, and more. How did I fare against the never-ending critical lambasting I was subjected to? I became paranoid, that's how I fared. My chronic paranoia had eventually caused me to become a hermit. Introverted, angry, depressed, monastic. Obviously not a very healthy attitude. And if one is not sound of mind, then one should not undertake dangerous assignments. That's why I was going to resign. The main reason, at least. But then, what would I do? It was now 7.45. I was falling behind schedule. I stood, stretched, then got dressed, choosing a navy blue sport shirt, jeans, a brown corduroy sport coat, black socks, and a pair of blue and yellow Brooks sneakers. I went to the bathroom and glued a mustache and beard to my face. I held the disguise in place until the glue dried, then tested its strength by making several preposterous grimaces. Satisfied that the beard was secure, I added sunglasses and a golf hat. The golf hat was bright red, with the word Phillies stitched in white across the front. I looked at my face in the mirror above the sink and smiled. I left the bathroom, tidied my bedroom, and toured my apartment to see if everything was properly arranged for my departure. 
I returned to the bedroom and found my black leather Hermes valise. I filled it with a tan summer suit, underwear, socks, two dress shirts, one white and one blue, and a red and blue striped tie. I added a brown belt to the valise, a pair of brown loafers, and a Walther 9mm automatic and silencer. I opened the front door and stepped outside. I picked up the morning New York Times, hung a keep-out sign on the door, then closed the door and locked it. I walked up Rodeo toward Wilshire. Taxi cabs lined the curb near the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. I went up to the circle of drivers. Excuse me, I said. Has anyone seen the duck? Someone said he was in the Pink Turtle coffee shop. I walked into the turtle and met the duck walking out. He was carrying a large container of black coffee. The duck was my least favorite cab driver. I disliked everything about him. He was always in a rotten mood, he smelled bad, and he was creepy looking. His hair was long and stringy, with random chunks of it dyed white blonde. The duck's clothes were a combination of fine silk and old government-issue throwaways. His blouse was always unbuttoned to the navel. No one knew whether the duck was an ugly man or an ugly woman. The cabbies would talk about the duck behind his back. They would say, What a strange motherfucking duck! That's how the duck got his nickname. We drove to the airport. On the way, the duck said, You're going to New York. American Airlines, Flight 28, it leaves at 8.30. How about that? And what am I going to do there? You're going to kill a wop named Moretti. Mario Moretti. He's staying at the plaza. You go straight there from the airport. There'll be a message for you at the hotel telling you what to do next. Here's some mugs on the guy. The duck held out a small manila envelope over the back of a seat and waved it impatiently. There's two pictures in there, said the duck. An old one and a new one. The new one is a WAP police shot of the dude. He was in a lineup in Rome about a month ago. He's a short bastard. He's even shorter than you. He's only five feet tall. The duck paused. Think you can handle it? He said. His eyes looked at me through the rearview mirror, then darted away. I think so, I said. I really hated the duck. I never could understand why the company recruited such filth. What's this guy's rap, I asked. I don't know, and frankly, I don't give a fuck. You know something, duck? You're a world-class asshole. Yeah? Well, let me tell you something. I worry about you lately. You're not the hot shotgun you used to be. You're getting old. You're a burnout. And fucking burnouts fuck up. Ah, oh, fuck you, asshole. Fuck you, too, said the duck. Christ, I thought to myself, even the low-life duck hates my guts. The airport was jammed with tourists. There seemed to be an inordinate number of cowboy hat sandals, Hawaiian shirts, Mickey Mouse ears, Bermuda shorts, and stretch pants straining to cover gigantic asses. A fucking sea of polyester, I muttered to no one in particular.
and walked to the check-in counter for my flight. When it was my turn, I said to the reservations clerk, I think I have a prepaid ticket to New York waiting for me. Your name, sir? Sonny Sixkiller. I guess it all started with the job interview in January 1963. I hadn't worked for over eight months, and my unemployment was about to run out. My rent was overdue, my telephone disconnected, my wristwatch and guitars hocked. Unfortunately, the situation wasn't new to me. I had been in this sort of dilemma before, many times, as a matter of fact. It was almost becoming a way of life. It seemed I was unable to hold a job past the month of May. In May, I would develop terminal spring fever and immediately find fault with the company that had temporarily employed me. Either the position was too boring, or my boss was an asshole, or I would convince myself there wasn't any chance of advancement, and I'd quit. In the nine years since I'd graduated from college, I had been in six different positions, and God knows how many total months I had been unemployed. In 1963, I was 33 years old, a modern-day Willie Loman sauntering aimlessly into oblivion. Then I saw the Help Wanted ad that appeared in the Washington Square News, New York University's weekly newspaper. College graduate, free to travel. That was the headline. At the bottom of the ad was a telephone number. I called, and a man with a no-nonsense voice answered. After rechecking my basic credentials, a college degree, desire to work abroad, lack of any immediate entanglements, the man agreed to an interview. He gave me a time and place, nine o'clock the following morning, at an address on Washington Square South. The next morning, I looked for the address among the identical four-story houses that faced the park on Washington Square South. When I finally found the correct one, I noticed that the only difference between it and all the others was a small bronze plaque on its front door that read, North American Center for the Arts. I couldn't begin to guess what the center did, or what I could possibly do for the center. Another waste of time. I rang the doorbell, and a large man in his early fifties opened the door. He stood erect, as if in a constant state of present arms. He wore a shirt and a tie, and a tan cardigan sweater instead of a suit coat. 